When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to We Are History. Ho, ho, ho. Happy Christmas, everybody. What are you doing, Jimmy? I'm here with my big white beard on and my, my <laughs> red and white Santa suit. It's Christmas, Angela, the happiest time of the year. Oh, God. Have you got all Christmassy, John? Well, it's just it's December, isn't it, nearly? Wait. Yeah. Well, actually, it is when you're listening to this. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so we've got to do a special Christmas one. The last one of the series. I'm going to miss it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but we've done eight. That's not bad, considering how much we we've had done on. eight. That's pretty uh, good. Yeah, we've managed to fit it in in our busy lives. Yeah, our busy lives between, you know, emailing <laughs> program controllers. And <laughs> yeah, right. Trying, trying to come up with book ideas or whatever we do. Yeah, um, but yeah all that so other stuff. A special Christmas Day edition. And uh, yeah, we tell us what it's John. about. Well, I considered various Christmassy themes, John, like the resignation of Mikhail Gorbachev, that happened on Christmas Day, and marked the end of the Soviet Union, uh, or the crowning of Charlemagne on Christmas Day in 800 AD. Very good. Uh, but in, in the end, I opted for something with huge gravitas uh, that really <laughs> occupies a special place in the British consciousness this time of year. Yes, we are doing the history of the Christmas number one. Oh, you know, when you said you opted for something for huge gravitas, I was thinking, I bet it's not. I bet she's saying the opposite for comic effect. <laughs> oh, you, you're you. into the little tricks that I do, John. I know you. Oh, yes. you got me, you've got me so <laughs> well. Right. So we touched on this a little bit, didn't we, in our History of Christmas episode that we did in 2020. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we thought, you know, something like last day of term, bring games into school. It'd be fun to yeah. zoom in on this particular British obsession. Um, yes. Because since the charts began, there's always been a song that happens to be number one on Christmas Day. But there was a point somewhere in the middle, 1970s, uh, Angela has, has ascertained, where we all sort of became obsessed with what it would be and whether it would be Christmassy or whatever. Absolutely. I was, of course, a child of the 80s, really. I was born in 76. So that was smack in the golden era of the Christmas song. But of course, it's worth pointing out, John. Not all Christmas number ones are Christmas songs. Absolutely. A lot of Christmas yeah. classic songs. Your Bings, your Bing Crosbys, you know, your Doris Days. They were recorded before we had a chart in the UK. Yeah, or absolutely. even a cart, as it says. In or your... a cart, as I put We're going back a long you, way. We're going back a long way if we didn't have carts. That's going, <laughs> going back before the invention of the wheel. <laughs> well, you know me, John. I like a bit of background. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, let's start. We will start with the phenomenon... Phenomenon. I find that hard word so hard. So do 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 do. Oh my god, this is going to be a silly one. I can feel it in my walls. We haven't even had any sherry um, yet. <laughs> I know. Actually, oh god, I should have poured a snowball for this. Oh, yeah, that would I've be just so bought the uh, the warnings avocado this week. Ready yeah, to go. for me. Oh, lovely. Uh, but anyway, there are some absolute Christmas bangers that never made it to Christmas number one. Uh, Fairy Tale of New York only made it. Evening <laughs> drunk tank oh i really haven't thought this through when i decided <laughs> to do this episode i hadn't thought oh god john's gonna sing repeatedly you know the thing about the <laughs> nypd choir yeah there isn't one. Oh, there you <laughs> so, go there you say, 
That's weirdly, that me and Jackie, that's our song. So oh, <laughs> one way to go, you scumbag, you maggot. That's you maggot. Us. Yeah, don't yeah. say the next slide, yeah. John. But yeah, <laughs> we, were, we were first courting that Christmas when it came out, 1987. Oh, uh, isn't that lovely? Well, it yeah. only made it to number two. Oh, Do you know, John, little quiz for you. Chuck a quiz question at you. Do you know what song beat it to be Christmas number one in 1987? Oh, I don't know. Was it George Michael? No. Oh, go on. Tell me. I'm not going to get it. No, it was Pet Shop Boys with uh, their cover of Always On My Mind. Oh, good song. And little fun fact, my uh, lovely friend from university, Andy McNally, who I don't know if you listen to this or not. If you do, Andy, hello. If you don't, why the fuck don't you? Um, <laughs> but he did... That particular song in 1999 on Stars in Their Eyes. This is a history podcast, everyone. You know, we yeah. do things like the Spanish Civil War and Angela's Friends song choice <laughs> on Stars in Their Eyes. It is, it's great. Look it up on YouTube. It's brilliant. He does Neil Tennant. I, I, def- I definitely good. will do that. I'll be looking up your old friend's song on Stars in Their Eyes. He <laughs> does a really good Neil Tennant impression. It mm-hmm. is worth mm-hmm. looking up. Don't John, listen to John. John is nodding. So, <laughs> music associated with Christmas is thought to have its origins in 4th century Rome which was the first yeah. Cliff Richard Christmas single. But <laughs> with hymns like Veni Redemptor Gentium, Come the Redeemer of the Nations. Yes, son. Or maybe Vidi Mamam Osculantum Santa, uh, which is what happened when I put, I saw mummy kissing Santa Claus through Google Translate. <laughs> That'd be a good round for a quiz, actually. That Latin Christmas songs. I'm going to write that down. No, the posh Boxing kids will Day, win that. It's going to be a riot at Bi- my house. Yeah, that's true. Posh kids, po- no. Privately educated yeah, kids no, will nail it, won't they? <laughs> um, so, yeah, so music in the form of chants and litanies became part of Christmas religious festivals, probably as it had done in pagan ceremonies before that. But... Mm. Then the Middle Ages, the English combined circle dances with singing and called them carols. Yes. Christmas carols in the in English first appear in a 1426 work of John Audley, who was a Shropshire priest and a poet who listed 25 carols of Christmas. Because his spelling was terrible. You can see how they say it. Carols of Christmas. Probably sung by a group of wassailers. Sound like a bunch wow. of hippies. Sailors. I love well was sailors and do you know what mummering is, John? Yes, yes. That's all very sort of pasto os and you know. Yeah. yeah. Well it still goes on. It's a big thing in Newfoundland. Oh god, here we go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd love me mentioning that. But Christmas in Newfoundland, they have like mummering's a really big deal. So you'll be sitting minding your own business, there's yeah. a knock at the door. Yeah. And you hear a voice, and they have to do the special mummer's voice, which is something like I'm gonna try and do it, right? Right. That's what they have to go. <laughs> Hang on, I can't do it. Any mummers loud in? What? Any mummers loud in? Any mummers loud in? No wonder, damn it, it's childhood. I'm being possessed. It's like this size of a mid 70s horror film. Well, it's like, if you, your like again. Cocks. <laughs> but Google it, right? Because they, they come in, and then a group of people come into your house, and they're all covered in white sheets, which makes it sound like yeah. something it isn't. But um, the idea is you disguise who you are. So your face is covered right. and you put on loads of padding and stuff and wear all these sheets. And then you they all pile into your house right. and sing and dance and make mischief, whatever that means. And one of them will usually have an accordion and one right. of them will have a sort of <laughs> stick with bells on. It's like Morris right. dancers on crack, basically. Right. And, um, and yeah, the idea is that they make mischief okay. in your house. It sounds uh, worryingly vague. It does, it does sort of seem like the perfect cover for a bit of murdering yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, and then what happens is the mummers stay in your house until 
you identify who they are. So it'll be people from your family or your yeah, community yeah. or whatever. And then only once you've identified who the mummers are, will they leave. And it's really exciting when you're a kid and the mummers have come in. Yes. I think in this bit of South London, probably best if my neighbours don't go uh, banging on my door with sheets over their head doing weird voices. I'm not sure. I think the police gun squads would be coming around fairly quickly. There's only certain places where you can do that sort yes, of thing. And yes. Newfoundland, Newfoundland, I think, is one of them. Yeah. Well, well done for getting Newfoundland into this podcast, Angela. That's, it's that's, a problem that's, about... That's a 80 podcast. out of 80. It's a podcast about Christmas. It's a very Christmassy, wintry place. <laughs> um, there's actually a poster of Newfoundland next to you where I'm look, looking there at you on Zoom. There actually is. <laughs> you are looking at that. Um, so where were we? Talking about history. Yes. During the interregnum under Oliver Cromwell, the singing of Christmas carols was banned. We have a podcast and, uh, about that. We have that. a podcast about we that, do. yes. Um, and then they came back, of course, with the restoration. And then the Victorians, they really took to a carol. They really loved a bit of Christmas. I told this story. I told this story on our Christmas special, but I'm going to tell it again. My lovely, my lovely American niece watched Love Actually. And for about oh, the yeah. on about 10th time she watched it, she suddenly realised that when he's holding up a sign saying, say it's carol singers, carol singers isn't, isn't the name of a friend of theirs. <laughs> Because, because, because in America they're called carolers. Carol, oh, of course, so, so carol she, singers is so, a name, right? Yeah, so she, she got to tell him it's carol singers, and it's like it's carol singers. <laughs> tell him to piss off. It's a bit rude to their friend Carol. <laughs> she only just realised, bless her. That's very yeah. Sweet. Sorry if you've heard that story once before, but anyway. So one of the earliest secular Christmas songs yes. uh, was the Twelve Days of Christmas. Uh, around that. 1740. Though wow. apparently the melody we know today didn't come about till 1909. Mm, you okay. realise that? Uh, Jingle Bells was written in 1857, but it was actually a Thanksgiving song, not oh. a Christmas song. Oh. What's your favourite Christmas song, John? Uh, Christmas carols. I really love In the Bleak Midwinter. That's a really, it, that's atmosp- a nice that's a really one. great atmospheric piece of music. Makes yeah. you shiver down your spine, that one. Yeah, I'd agree. I've got a lovely version of... Um, Julie Andrews. I was going to say Julie Waters then. Julie Waters would be That'd different. Be different. <laughs> would, would be a bit different. Julie yeah. Andrews singing it. It's very nice. Yeah. And then carols. Well, I'd say obviously Fairytale New York is uh, as an all time favourite, I think, for the, on the, on the, sorry, for the Christmas modern ones, not the carols. Um, yeah. What other modern ones do I like? I quite like the uh, Phil Spector Christmas album, <laughs> which doesn't quite fit into this. Cause, <laughs> I'm jumping about in the bleak me winter and I saw mummy kissing Santa Claus, you know. Yeah. Frosty, the snowman. Yours is Little Donkey, isn't it? I love Little Donkey. I love the song Little Donkey. But I also, I have a real soft spot for Paul McCartney's Wonderful Christmas Time. And I'll tell you why. It's ever since someone pointed out, it was a couple of years ago, I think, on Twitter. Right. That you can, it really changes how you see this song. That it's basically, if you imagine it's about friends practicing witchcraft. But then someone walks in and they suddenly have to pay it call to disguise what they're doing. And once you hear it, you can't unhear it because it sort of goes, the the mood is right, the spirit's up, we're here tonight and that's enough. And then suddenly it goes, it's like someone walks in and they go, simply having a wonderful Christmas stuff. And once you see that, you can't unsee it. Theory went viral, apparently. It did. And and then someone someone else on Twitter said, this does explain why the choir has allegedly practised all year long to learn a song Consisting only of the words of ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. <laughs> like a Eurovision entry. It's just really, yeah. <laughs> yes. So, um, but we're not. Yeah, I, not, I would like that. We're not doing an episode on Christmas songs, are we? Doing an episode no, we're on not. Christmas number ones, and actually, yes, very few Christmas number ones are Christmas songs. Is that right? Of course, some are a bit of a grey area. Of course, for example, in 1994, the Christmas number one 
uh, was Stay Another Day by E17. Remember that mm, one, John? Uh, not really, but go on. Well, the song was written by band member Tony Mortimer and it was actually about his brother Ollie's suicide. Happy Christmas. Yeah, well, quite. Um, apparently, they filmed two versions of the video for the song uh, because the song doesn't mention Christmas at right. all. So they do one song where they're singing just in, them in a studio. Yeah. Sorry, one video where they're singing just them in a studio and one video where they're wearing these white parkers with big white furry hoods and they're singing in the snow and they've added a few jingly bells to it and then suddenly it's a christmas song despite the song not being about christmas so i think if you're willing to accept that stay another day is a christmas song then you also have to accept that die hard is a christmas film (laughs) which it 100 percent is john so what is a christmas number one it feels like you're setting me up for a joke about what happens three hours after Christmas dinner, but that would be a Christmas number two, I suppose. Yay! <laughs> We're looking at the number one selling single on Christmas Day. Top of the hit parade. Yes, Grandad, that's right. So... <laughs> How is this measured then? What is the uh, what is the data that we use now? Because it's changed over the years, is not it? It has changed a bit over the years. So let's go back a little bit and look at the history of the charts themselves. Yeah, here we go. It's how they record, how they measured record sales in Pangaea. Yes. Emerging <laughs> Homo erectus. <laughs> <laughs> I shall ignore that, John. Uh, before the sales of records were, well, actually recorded, the popularity of a song was measured by the sales of sheet music. So people buying the music to play it themselves. And it wasn't until 20th of July 1940 that America's music industry paper, Billboard, compiled the first ever chart based on sales figures of records. Blimey, you'd think, you, you think there were other things to worry about, wouldn't you? In t- July 1940, the whole of Europe was imploding. They're going, I wonder which record has sold the most. America, <laughs> could you mind looking over here? <laughs> uh, so there wasn't a UK chart till years later, was there, in 1952? Yeah. And Percy Dickens of the New Musical Express gathered a pool of 52 record stores willing to report their sales figures. Well done, Percy. That's right. So for the first ever UK chart, Dickens phoned approximately 20 shops, gave them a ring, asking them for a list of their 10 best-selling songs. These results were then aggregated into a top 12 chart, uh, which was published in NME, the first ever British chart, on the 14th of November 1952. Wow. And the number one song that year was Al Martino, who was apparently an American singer and actor. I don't, oh, know, I don't, I don't know this one. Uh, and his song was called Here in My Heart. So that was the first British number one. And it stayed at number one for nine weeks, which means what, John? That it's not as good as Brian Adams' song. Yes, but what else? We have our first Christmas number one. Yes, Stay tuned, pop pickers. I knew you'd be doing your Fluff Freeman at some point, John. Which anyone who doesn't know who that is will be wondering what on earth I've just accused you of. So the first UK Christmas number one was also the first UK number one at all. Right. So we're off. The UK charts are born. They're printed in the New Musical Express. That's right. In October 1954, it expanded from being a top 12 to a top 20 format and then a top 30 format in 1956. From 1955, different rival publications started compiling their own formats for different sales charts. Uh, so the 50s became a bit of a free fall for charts then. The Record Mirror compiled its own chart based on postal returns from record stores and stuff like that. It's a bit like, yeah. it's a bit like now. So when... You know, when you have a book come out and it's a number one bestseller, that is a big deal. And my first book yeah. was a number one bestseller and I go on the front of it, number one bestseller. And now, now if you're on Amazon, best 
sports fiction chart you get people go the number one bestseller what no so nadine doris has got number one bestseller on her novels and it's like well, you mm. weren't number one bestseller in the sunday times that's the measure no. and it's like i was best, number one bestseller in best fiction nursing tory mps <laughs> yeah, exactly. who have written books literally it's the, sub, the subheadings like <laughs> yeah. that but people use it and it's really de- it really demeans the um but, but it doesn't upset you john that's it does it does piss you're, me off because i've had a proper number one you're not anyway, bitter about it. That's the main thing. Let it go, Joe. Um, Nadine, so, Nadine, just don't stop worrying about Nadine. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't. She's occupying too much space in your head, John. She's living rent free in your head. Stop it. So, um, yes. Melody Maker gets in on the act as well. In 1956, they would phone 19 record stores for their sales and compile their own top 20. And they were the first to include Northern Ireland in their sample. Interestingly, Record Retailer, yet another industry paper. They start a top 50 chart in 1960. You've got to feel sorry for all these people in the record shops. Who's it on the phone now? Are this a record yeah, mirror now? Another like, record uh, newspaper. Uh, Jesus, uh, everyone one. wants to know our sales. <laughs> we told the other guys. Can't you ring them? <laughs> so uh, I think um, The Enemy was the most widely followed of all these charts. Mm. Um, but in uh, 1963, Retailer began auditing and has been used by the UK singles chart. Uh, for number ones from the week ending 12th of March, 1960 onwards. Yes. Now, a certain little pick of the pops. Do the theme tune, John. Yeah. So that started in 1955 on the BBC Light programme. And then David Jacobs, he broadcast the first averaged BBC Top 20 on Saturday, the 29th of March, 1958, which is a rundown of the week's top 20. And they got their charts by basically aggregating the results of all these other charts from the Enemy, Melody Maker, Disc, Record Mirror, Record Retailer, should all those the, other ones. Should have rung the record shops up. They had nothing to do. Yeah, just all of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so then uh, uh, Alan Fluff Freeman, he took over in September 61 and he yeah. took the show to a regular Sunday slot in January 62. Yes. And though until 1969, there was still no official single singles chart. Okay, Uh, But then what happened in February 1969, Record Retailer and the BBC, they commissioned the British Market Research Bureau to compile the charts. And it Ah. did. They did so from postal returns of sales logs from 250 record shops. Oh, that's a bit better now. So record shops were sort of randomly chosen from a pool of approximately 6,000. And they submitted figures for sales taken up to the close of trade on Saturday. Uh, yeah, sales right. diaries were translated into punch cards so the data could be interpreted by this new thing called a computer. A computer. And then another computer compiled the chart on Monday and the BBC were informed of the top 50 on Tuesday. And I remember Tuesday lunchtime was when you'd like know whether, you know, God Save the Queen was number one or whatever. Mm. In time for it to be announced on Johnny Walker's afternoon show. Exciting. That's right. And it was during this time as well. It wasn't always that straightforward. In 1971, there was a postal strike, which meant data had to be collected by telephone again. And so they reduced the chart to a top 40 instead of a top 50. And then in 1973, uh, sorry, by 1973, the the BMRB was using motorcycle couriers to collect the sales figures. So because of um, all the strikes that kept happening. Yeah. Um, and around this time, there was also a lot of press and there was even a nationwide special on TV about something called hyping, where record companies were involved somehow in massaging these sales figures and fixing the charts. So I think they would, you know, send find buyers, out which yeah. shops were being, yeah. you know, and then send buyers into those yeah. shops and things. It was all a big scandal at the time. The charts went electric in early 1980s, much like the music. Judas! <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Gallup chart was financed by the British phonographic industry. 
BPI, Music Week yep. and the BBC. Yes. And then in 1994, something called Millwood Brown takes over um, and they started getting their data direct from barcode scanners in selected shops. Okay. So it was all getting this a bit is, more This is bloody gripping. Direct. This is, this is, isn't it? This is gripping. It's fascinating. Different, I think it's interesting, How the John. data was collected. A long history. Yeah, I think it's interesting. People oh, were. now the internet age. And internet, yeah. in the iTunes stores was launched in the UK in 2004, and more than 450,000 songs were downloaded in the first week. And in September 2004, the first official UK download chart was launched. See, it's all it's different the, now, isn't it? We've gone from single like no, records it's, to it's, it's, cassette it's singles to downloads. Ringing up the record stores, and suddenly we've got yeah. computerised data. It is, I'm just, exactly. I'm, so in 2005 was the first time the singles chart combined both physical sales and downloads. Okay. Yeah. And then from June 2014, streaming music was also counted towards the charts. So the charts have undergone a lot of changes. But throughout it all, for some reason, we in the UK have remained obsessed with what was number one on Christmas Day. Yes. And the first one, let's say go back to when it started, was Al Martino, as you said. Then 1953, it was Answer Me by Frankie Lane. And in 1954, Let's Have Another Party by Winifred Atwell. I, I, I just love the there's something about I know obviously at the time Winifred wasn't an old fashioned name but there's just something about a pop star called Winifred isn't there <laughs> yeah. um, now 1955 was a bit of a landmark year because this was the first actual Christmas song right. to be an official Christmas number one Okay, uh, and it was of course Christmas Alphabet by Dickie Valentine oh, you know that one don't you John still a favourite <laughs> A Poor is Dickie. for something, B is for <laughs> something else, C is no for Christmas. How it goes. <laughs> I guess, I'm guessing. Uh, I'd love yeah. it. I'm, I feel like I want to look it up now because you're yeah. probably right. Uh, yeah. um, oh, Paul old Dickie, he tried to go for it again in 1956 with a song called Christmas Island, but it only reached number eight. And then very sadly, Dickie Valentine uh, died in a car crash on his way to a gig in Carefully in 1971. Oh. There you go. Well, but the first Christmas song to be Christmas number one. Did you say that? But isn't I mean, this is a, a British uh, uh, focus, of course. But "White Christmas" by Bing Crosby was like a record-breaking song back in the day. So how does that fit? Into yeah, this? but it was before charts began, John. Ah, We're talking see. about the official Christmas number oh, one in it, Britain on Christmas I remember my Day. Guinness, my Guinness Book of Records had it as one of the best-selling singles of all time. Yeah, which it, it was. But remember, they started yeah. counting the charts earlier in America. Right. But we're in Brit- We're talking is, about the obsession with the British number oh, one, it. John. I've got it. Yeah, I've got, I've got you. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Yes. Um, 1956 was Johnny Ray with Just Walking in the Rain. And 1957, it's a banger, Harry Belafonte oh, yeah. with Mary's Boy or Child. Oh. Yes, indeed. King Calypso himself. He had um, two other top three hits that year, Banana Boat Song and Island in the Sun, oh, and Mary's yeah. Boy Child, all in 1956. Well done, Harry Belafonte. Despite yes. a couple of Christmas songs making the charts in the 50s, the whole Christmas number one obsession hadn't really landed Really had it same in the sixties. Yeah, not in the way it does now. Same in the sixties. There wasn't one Christmassy Christmas number one in the whole of the sixties. Can you believe that? That is amazing. Thanks to the Beatles. There weren't actually that yeah. many Christmas songs in the sixties. I can think of. No. I mean, there's the no. Ronettes. The the there's Ronettes. The Phil Spector Christmas album in America. I'm going back over the Atlantic again. I've been spending too much time in America, Angela. But yeah, you have. Uh, that was not released in the UK in the sixties. That was didn't come over here till seventy two, and no yeah. singles were ever released from that album. Even though it's a sort of we think of it as a real Christmassy sort of list of. Tunes. You do, John. <laughs> All right, I'll shut about America. <laughs> but the 60s did start a pattern for a certain Cliff Richard getting his first Christmas number one with the not very Christmassy I Love You. 
They didn't have to be very interesting with song names at the beginning of rock and roll, did they? <laughs> I love I you. I love you. Yeah. She loves you. Yeah. They love you. Uh, oh, all love, you need love. is love. Isn't love nice? All you need is love. Hold my yeah. hand. Oh, yeah. I love you. Yeah, Moon River. <laughs> Moon River's a good title. That got to the top spot. And then that El- did in 61. And yeah. then Elvis Presley's Return to Sender. That was a 62 Christmas number one. Big hit. Because it was just when yeah. Elvis had come out of the army. So they were like, oh, yeah, we've got to buy his new song. Yeah. And that would have been your first Christmas number one, wouldn't right, it, John? Right. Don't rub it in. <laughs> <laughs> Long time ago, then, I know. And then came along a little combo called The Beatles. Yes. And they never did a Christmas record together. No. Uh, but they did used to issue an annual Christmas record on FlexiDisc. Do you remember FlexiDisc, yeah. John? I remember I used to have um, a FlexiDisc with... Uh, Oh, it was of nursery rhymes. It had Who Killed Cock Robin on it. I remember I got free with a comic oh. and I loved it. They were... Didn't have much, be listeners didn't have that won't have a clue up. what we're talking about. <laughs> Flexi, it was like a sort of a, a, a record so thin that yeah, it could it was, be in the pages of a magazine. Well, Private Eye used to give out a free one every Christmas. It would be a comedy sketches yeah. one on Private Eye, the free Flexi disc. And when yeah. I did a university um, magazine, we gave we gave out a free Flexi disc because they were quite cheap yeah. to produce. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. So, they're, they're so the Beatles would do that and it was all silly songs and surreal sketches and poems and things that would go to their yeah. fan mean, club members. They did go on to do festive songs as, as solo artists, didn't they? Wonderful Christmas Time, as yeah, you mentioned. Yeah, one of them did, yeah. George did Ding Dong, which was technically a New Year's song, but we won't worry about that. John, yeah. John famously did Happy Christmas, War Is Over. Yeah. And uh, Riga Star did an album in 99 called I Wanna Be Santa Claus. Yes, so, indeed. Yeah. Uh, but the Beatles did have the Christmas number one, John, in 1963 with I Wanna Hold Your Hand. And they also had the number two that year with She Loves You. So they were the first band to keep themselves off the Christmas number one spot. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. <laughs> Do you know when, when they were writing She Loves You, um, they did it for their dad, for Paul McCartney's oh. dad. And he goes, oh, there's enough of this Americanism in this country now. It should be She Loves You, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> they didn't well, take his advice. Well, he's got a point if you ask me. <laughs> they didn't take his advice. So yeah, they were the first band to do um, three Christmas number ones in a row. So it was I feel fine in '64, and we can work it out. Day trip a double A side in 1965. Very impressive. Then yeah. 1966, Tom Jones gets in there with Green Green Grass at home. Yeah, uh, but who's it? Back again in 67, it's the Beatles with Hello Goodbye, their last Christmas number one as a group. Indeed. I can sing both now, of those if you want. Nah, you're all right. <laughs> you can sing the next song because the next song is one of my favourites. I love it. So 1968, another bit of a landmark year in terms of Christmas number ones, as it's the first one that you might call a novelty song to be Christmas number one. Uh, we end up with a few of them. We'll come to them later. But I love this song because it really reminds me of my dad. And it is Lily the Pink. By Scaffold. Ah, yes. We'll I love that. So, drink, so, drink, 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 drink to Lily the Pink, the Pink, the Pink, the same. I remember it, I remember it, Angela. I remember it being in the charts. Uh, oh, it's yeah. such a good... And I didn't. I don't think I knew that it was... Um, It's just an American traditional song I didn't know called that. The Ballad of Lydia Pinkham. I see. That they just sort of modernised and reworked a bit. Um, And yeah. it does have a slight link to the Beatles, that song. Yes, indeed. It's uh, Paul's brother. Indeed. Scaffold was Roger McGough, John Gorman and Mike McGear, who was actually Mike McCartney, right. brother of Paul. I, um, I've met um, Roger McGough a few times uh, since then. I was at a, a literary festival and uh, the, one of the interns there, who was like 21 or something, came up to me and said, um, oh, hello, are you Roger McGough? Are you ready to go on? It's like, <laughs> I'm not Roger McGough. <laughs> oh, they must have gone. Roger Who's McGough? Roger McGough? He's the old, the old bald The old one. white bloke. <laughs> the old bald one. It's like, no, no, no. His, he was in the charts when I was six. 
Oh, dear. I must say, I do love a novelty song. Me too. John. The first time I did um, Pointless, oh, yeah. I um, we got knocked out, knocked out in the second round. I was doing it with Rich Hall and the questions were very Anglo-centric, so I was right. a bit annoyed. But we watched the rest of it from the green room and the final round, which was Ed Byrne and I can't remember who he was with, but the final round was novelty songs oh, and I got every single oh, I one right. I, was, I, oh. I, like, I would have got a Pointless answer easy. Um, and now one of my favourite novelty songs John is um, a song my dad bought for me on 7 inch uh, 1986 Christmas 1986 and it was Santa Claus is on the doll oh yeah Spitting Image Spitting Image do you have anything to do with that I didn't know it's before my time actually so I wasn't uh, uh, commissioned for Spitting Image uh, I was still working on building sites in uh, 1986 but I remember it it's written by Phil Pope it's the music and the words and lyrics are by Grant and Naylor who went on to do Red oh, Dwarf oh are they Red Dwarf yeah. writers yeah but Phil Pope I still see I'm, I'll be I play foot with him regularly so I'll tell him that was a favourite oh, I'll tell yours. him how much there's still an earworm for me yeah. Santa Claus is, is on, on the, the doll. doll so you might as well be naughty yeah oh, I loved it and, and and the B-side was something called the Atheist Tabernacle Choir, which, again, still an earworm of mine. That's great. If you they, don't believe in God, They had good songs on Spitting Image. They, they were great yeah, songs. Yeah, we had some good ones. I mean, um, some very famous ones. I did write some songs for Spitting Image later, and I still get the PRS, actually, funny. I get this little sort of uh, check every now and then for songs. Which songs did you write? Oh, well, they don't, they're very famous ones. We did one of... Um, I did one called Board of the USA, which is sort of a Bruce Springsteen <laughs> nice. parody. And I did one. We did one with uh, Arnie Schwarzenegger singing, Yeah, my villi is tiny. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> is that the one that Matt remembered? My husband said to you, oh, the only spitting image song I remember it. And then it was one you yeah, Probably that one, I think. I, I think it was that one. I, I can't remember them all, but it was um, writing songs. is Writing good songs is hard to come up with a new idea. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, they did do good songs. And they was like, they used to, uh, you know, the favourite of everyone's, I think, is... Um, I never made a nice South African. Oh, yeah. That, <laughs> that was, was that the B-side to the chicken song, No, I think it was it? a song in its own right. Or maybe it was. Maybe it was. No, it was a B-side. It was a B-side to the chicken song. But when I'm it went sure. out, it was like, yeah. <laughs> I bloody nailed it. I never made a nice South African. Could that not bloody surprising me? Yeah, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> anyway. I don't know if you could do it now. Yeah, I don't know if yeah, you could. Probably uh, couldn't. Maybe. So we're getting towards the end of the decade. And so the final Christmas number one of the decade was Two Little Boys by Rolf Harris. Maybe we should leave it there. Maybe yes, just I that think image. That's a good time for a little break. Two little boys had two little toys. It's not this perfectly innocent song. It's one of Margaret Thatcher's favourite songs. I'll have you know. Uh, well, so in your head, it is a those two little song, boys. I... If you remember the lyrics, do you think they're yeah. on the same side in the war or on opposite sides? Oh, I that... I assumed they they were on the same side. No, and he... see, I said this to my old co-writer Mark Burton. We had a, we, were, yeah. we argued for about it for about five years, and he goes, "No, clearly they're on the opposite sides in the Civil War." And that's why it's such a bigger deal for him to say there's room on my horse. I suppose It's so. better if they're on opposite sides. But I always said, oh, I always thought they were on the same side. They well, went I to war against France or something. I thought they were the same side. He just, he just didn't leave him. Yeah. 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 But if they're on opposite sides, like it's the American Civil War or something. Or that is a better narrative. It is a better narrative. That's good Good writing, Mark. Or Rolf yes. or whoever wrote it. Um, but maybe leave you to think about that during the break. We'll, Absolutely. We'll go you go and, and find yourselves a blank C90 as well. Because, you know, we're going to go through some more charts. You might want to press play and record. Wait for your favourite song to come up. Oh, those are the days. So welcome back, Pop Pickers, and uh, pop your bell bottoms and platforms on, mates. Uh, you're already wearing them. It's the 1970s. Hey, <laughs> I'll do that again. Okay, welcome back there, Pop Pickers. I don't know what accent that was. Do it again. <laughs> Suddenly going Australian. <laughs> you know, you said how you weren't drinking the sherry. Are you sure? 
Uh, <laughs> now, pop your bell bottoms on and platforms on. Oh, Angela's already wearing them because it's the 1970s where things start to get interesting. 1970, yes. the Christmas number one, yes. Angela, is. It's I Hear You Knocking by Dave Edmonds. Yes. Uh, 1971, it's Benny Hill with Ernie, the fastest milkman in the West. Ah, uh, two-ton Ted from Teddington, who drove the milk, the baker's van. Yes. <laughs> Can you believe Benny Hill, that TV show was on TV for 34 years. It's very popular. Um, originally written for a screenplay, that song. 1955 Ooh. screenplay that it was never made about his early experiences as a milkman. When I was yeah, canvassing in Eastleigh, because I was the Labour yeah. candidate in that by-election, and there was, he's from Eastleigh, and there's a road called Benny Hill Close. Can you imagine? <laughs> when, if just, you're a woman walking up... got scantily yeah, clad women, women running, running up and down. I put that... And I put it when Jackie was doing a running on the common... Uh, I said, oh, I'll do a compilation on Spotify. So she's uh, all these great, cool running tracks. And suddenly she's running across the common too. John. My dad used to do this thing when I was little, when I was in the bath and he was bathing me and he would put my thumb in his mouth. And like, it's really hard to explain this in an audio form, but would play my arm like it was trumpet. a trumpet. Made you laugh then. And, and that was always the tune that he did. Oh, right. Yakety sax. But then, and then I used to, I couldn't understand why it wouldn't work for me. Like, I'd put my thumb in my mouth and be like, why won't it work? My arm trumpet only works for my dad. Surprising, you were 21. Um, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's embarrassing, really. Uh, Where are we 1972. Now? Uh, oh. That was a record-breaking year. Little Jimmy Osmond uh, oh, yes. was Christmas number one with long-haired lover from Liverpool. And he was just nine years old, nine years and eight months, which made him the youngest ever artist to this day to get a UK number one. Is that okay, John? A song called Longhead Lover from Liverpool being sung by a nine-year-old. Yeah, it's I a bit know. weird. At the time, I, think you're think, I think I thought it was a bit weird at the time, actually, because he was younger than me at that point. I was a 10-year-old. a child. I was a 10-year-old non-lover from Maidenhead. And uh, <laughs> I was in, that, was a, that was the Christmas I was in um, uh, Winnie the Pooh at the Phoenix Theatre. And, oh, I, and I had it? to come on stage whistling. It just said in the stage directions, uh, Christopher Robin enters whistling. And I used to whistle yeah. Goodbye to Jane by Slade. <laughs> Did you? Yes. <laughs> you little glam rocker. Yeah. Oh. So 1973 is when, talking of Slade, when things really kick off. It's the point at which the nation becomes utterly obsessed by who would be number one on Christmas Day. Yeah, it was the battle of the Christmas songs. Two titans of glam rock release a Christmas song at the same time. On one hand, you've got Wizard with I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day. And in the other hand, Slade, of course, with Merry Christmas, everybody. Oh, Angela, and... Angela, you don't spell everybody like that. Slade. No, I've, I've spelt it properly. You spelt in the it notes. correctly. I'm terribly sorry. Everybody. <laughs> I'm terribly sorry. It's everybody. Come and fill the noise. C U M. Yes. Um, uh, and who of course won? Slade who won? won. Of course, Slade won. Slade, because it was a better song. Uh, yes. In fact, Wizard only got to number four that week. And the number two song uh, was. Check my notes. So, uh, yeah, it won't go there. It just rhymes with Barry Bitter. Let's say that. Right, to move on. Um, yes. Noddy Holder, the Slade singer, um, he said about that song, which obviously is still widely played. Oh, my God, yeah. It's Christmas. Sorry. <laughs> no, a, he said... You sound, like, economic... sound like Marge Simpson when you do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, we did talk about it being a, a tough time economically, didn't we? That uh, yeah, that's of, what he said. Economically, well, the country was up the creek. Um, I mean, I think we're talking about uh, the um, Heath government, nineteen seventy-three, not the winter of discontent, as we explained in our podcast on that period of the seventies. But yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, then he said power cuts and all that. Strikes. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So he said, once I got the line, does your granny always tell you the old ones are the best? I knew I'd got a right cracker on my yeah, hands. Yeah, because the point is, and then she's up and rock and rolling with the rest. With the rest. Yes. Exactly. He was right. He was right. And uh, it was a very, very popular song. And from basically, you can Christmas gets earlier and earlier every year. And it's at what point do they play Merry Christmas, Everybody by Slade? It's like, it's like oh, it's in October I first heard Merry Christmas, Everybody. And there's this, and I think it was this point onwards, wasn't it, really, that people start yeah. to pay attention to what would be number one on Christmas Day. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and of course, the number one, the Christmas Day number one, would be played on Christmas Top of the Pops, which was a Christmas feature in our house oh, yeah, in the 80s too. and 90s. You had to watch Christmas Top of the Pops to see yeah. what was number one. And the following year, it was another Christmas glam rock song, which was Mud's Lonely This Christmas. And when they played that on Top of the Pops, the lead singer, Les Gray, sang the song to a ventriloquist dummy. Would you say Mud were glam rock, Angela? All sort well, of they, rock and roll, shawaddy waddy sort of. That, you know. that particular song they did in that Elvis shawaddy waddy style, but generally they were a glam rock band, weren't they? Yeah, they? I, Tiger more sort of, a bit more. Uh, I think of them as more sort of like uh, Teddy Boy rock and roll. A parody. Oh, I don't know. It was Tiger Feet. Right in, guys. Tell more. us. I don't What know. do you think Mud were? Of course, of course, John. I don't. I mean, I don't really Man. have any skin in this game because I hadn't been born yet. I got their autograph in the outside the top of the pop studio. <laughs> I sold it at school. Um, true story. Um, and um, so a huge surge of Christmas songs in the seventies and eighties. Obviously, bands saw that this could be a real money maker because you know so many more things are sold at Christmas. If you have a Christmas hit song, it's going to get played to death every Christmas, and you can sit back and count the royalties. Yeah, in um, in the uh, I was going to say Tony Curtis, not Tony Curtis. <laughs> Jesus Christ, menopause Richard is Curtis. kicking in. Richard, John. Curtis. Richard Curtis, thank you. Film Love Actually, Bill Nye plays that washed up rocker Billy Mac, yeah. who has a comeback reworking the Trogs Love is All Around to Christmas is All Around to try and get a Christmas number one and make his fortune. Yes. I mean, that's a sort of uh, film trope. Yeah. Um, if you remember the novel about a boy, well, the movie, yeah. um, the character played by Hugh Grant is the son of a pop star who had uh, or wrote a Christmas number one and he lives off the royalties and he's sort of rich from the royalties. Mm. And so... Somebody wrote into the Guardian notes and queries and said, is it actually enough to live off? Is it a fortune for the rest of your life if you write a Christmas number one? And rather brilliantly, uh, Greg Lake, who wrote I Believe in Father Christmas, you know, the guy from Emerson, Lake and Palmer and King Crimson. Mm. um, He wrote back uh, in 1975, I wrote and recorded a song called I Believe in Father Christmas, which some Guardian readers may remember and may even own. It was a big hit and it still gets played on the radio every year around December. And it appears on more or less every Christmas compilation going. So I can tell you from experience that it's a lovely to get the old royalty check around September every year. But on its own, the Christmas song money isn't quite enough to buy my own island in the Caribbean. If Guardian readers oh. could all please request it to be played by their local radio stations, maybe that Caribbean island wouldn't be so far away. And if I get there, you're all invited. Oh, uh, what a lovely letter. Oh, dear Greg, who left us oh. some years back. Um, but 2005, he wrote that in to say that, no, it's not quite enough to uh, to retire on. But uh, and of course, and The Guardian, they, you... that was like the third reply to that question. It's like, it wasn't even, oh, the, well, it wasn't even like a, a story on its own. It's like, who's written in, you know, F blogs from Manchester? Oh, Greg Lake from ELP? Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> yeah, so I thought well, that was he, great. And that in 2005 was 30 years, of course, after his song, I believe in Father Christmas, actually made it to number two ah, uh, in 1975. That... Of course, it was kept off the 
the number one spot by Bohemian Rhapsody, which was the Christmas number oh, one. So Christmassy, that, isn't it? Isn't it? Um, 1976, that was my first Christmas, John. Oh. I was just six weeks old oh. at Christmas. And do you know what the Christmas number one was? When a child is born, Johnny oh. Mathis. Now, I'm not saying those two facts are related, <laughs> but my birth is a pretty big yeah, deal. That was obviously singing about you, I'm sure. <laughs> obviously, obviously. <laughs> I bet your that is a parents song, looked down that little baby and play turned up the radio for when a child is born said i think she may turn into this, this could be the second coming and she could be the <laughs> how wrong they were um 78 another another religious one mary's boy child the first song to be christmas number one twice but with different yes. artists this time it was the boney m version yes indeed it was uh 1979 we all go a bit prog rock we start to go a bit prog now in the late 70s pink floyd another ah, brick yes. in the wall Remember it well um, that song nearly didn't get released as a single. Oh, really? Did you know that? Yeah. It was because it the uh, another brick in the wall was in three parts, and the part that was a single was part two, education. Okay. And when the producer wanted to release it as a single, Roger Waters said no because they weren't a singles band. And the producer went ahead because he thought the song had something, but it was only like a minute long that section of wow. it. So he went ahead, got in touch with the teacher in charge of the choir at Islington Green School. Recorded them doing their bits that they do. Yeah. And when he played it to Roger Waters, he changed his mind and they released it. That's funny. Cool. I remember um, so a friend, uh, friend in Maidenhead, his dad was a bit, bit, little bit snobby, would sing out, sing out loud, we don't need no education. You can tell it from our accents. Oh, snob. <laughs> That's oh, yeah, Maidenhead pe- for you. People who talk like me. Uh, aren't very clever, are we? No, just refer you to different times, just refer yeah. you to House of Games. Um, yeah. Oh dear. <laughs> Leave that there. So yes, school <laughs> choirs pop up again, don't they? They do. Speaking of school choirs, 1980 was the first Christmas number one that I remember watching on Top of the Pops. Wow. And that was St Winifred's School Choir singing "No One Quite Like Grandma." Yes. Not my favourite. It was quite song. a thing. Yeah. It was quite a thing at that time of popping school choirs on records. Do you remember the Langley Schools Music Project? I do not. Have you heard no. that? So this was a thing. So it was this hippie Canadian music teacher called Hans Fenger. And in the um, late 76, I think it was, right. um, he got these four primary school, elementary schools, so they're in Canada together, right. and he recorded them singing covers of different pop songs of the days. And they released it on these two albums and nothing nothing happened with them. It was just a local thing they did. And then in 2000, this record collector found a couple of copies of these albums in a thrift store. Right. And he took them around record companies and, and this record company eventually released them as an album in 2000 called Innocence and Despair. And they really took off. There was like a real buzz about them. I remember reading about them in a music magazine in 2001. Wow. I've got the album somewhere. I've got the CD somewhere. And it is brilliant. They did covers of it. It's just like a school choir, a school okay. band with like proper sort of school instruments, you know. Yeah. And they did um, Beach Boys covers. They did a brilliant cover of um, Calling Occupants of Interplanetary Craft. Wow. Gorgeous version of Desperado. Like, look it up. It's on Spotify. It's called The Langley Schools Music Project. And it's just so innocent oh, and kind it's, of... It's just cute. Um, Good for that. Teacher. Yeah, I love it just when really come to the fore again like that. But yeah, no one, no one quite likes Grandma. It's just annoying if you don't mind me saying so. Oh, it answer. is annoying. So it's <laughs> so no one quite like it's so clearly designed to be bought for Grandma as a Absolutely. as a cynical merchandising. Just like Granddad, we love you. We love and you. Mother of mine by Neil. My mother of mine by Neil Reed. Mother of mine. I don't suppose I don't anyone remembers that one. one. That was number one. Ugh, and it's just like 
Yeah, well, haven't we done? Right. Auntie Jean. Yeah. <laughs> That's a bit Auntie narrow. Jean, we love you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I think I think one of the most upsetting things about no one quite likes grandma being Christmas number one is it was December 1980. Ah. John Lennon had literally just died. Oh, he no. was shot on the 8th of December 1980. But his song that had been in the charts just like starting over was number two on Christmas Day to Oh, bloody no, 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 no if he'd been grand, shot a no week earlier like if he'd been shot a week yeah. earlier it might have had time to get to number one but that's that's probably not the point no so we're quite. probably into did the 80s know, it's gone so what were you going to say um, did you know St Winifred's school choir were also the choir doing the backing vocals on Matchstalk Men and Matchstalk Cats and Dogs oh I didn't know that another annoying song yeah. another really annoying song yes <laughs> we're into the 80s 1981 what a great song Don't You Want Me by the Human League also yep. they didn't want to release that as a single I was going to say Phil Oakey really upset that that got yeah, released as a single he thought really it's not a single to. it's an album track and he was proved wrong yeah. I used to the manager of that band um, he used to play football with him uh, what a great song that is karaoke favourite feminist anthem yeah. really I yeah. mean you know it's great to have two narratives in the same song I like a song with a story and that's uh, yes, that's got absolutely. one absolutely 82 oh god I remember this one I was at university <laughs> Save Your Love For Me by Rene and Renata the bloke next door used to blast this out at full volume do you remember that I, I do remember seeing it on top of the pops and I'm not saying John that women got a raw deal in the 80s but the Rene part was sung by someone whose real name was Hilary Lester right and Renato was an Italian singer right so they made her change her name to Rene, so it sounded more Rene and Renato, you right. know. But then in the video, they replaced her with a beautiful young model. But it was okay for Renato to be some fat bloke who wasn't exactly an oil painting. But Hillary wasn't allowed to be Hillary. She had to be replaced by a model and change her name to Rene. She got more money. That's number one, is all I'll say. Which you've got yeah, to number one. Yeah, but I bet one. she didn't get more money than him. I bet she bloody didn't. Yeah, I don't know. All yeah. I'll say is they got to number one. And it kept, they did, it, yeah. Anyway. It was, a, it was not a great song. It was played too loudly by no. my neighbours at university. <laughs> 1983, I remember this one, Flying Pickets mm. with a cover version of Yazoo's Only You, which had been a hit itself quite recently. And then they did, before, a, yeah, they did a sort of a cappella version of it. And uh, it got to a number one. They were a weird but looking bunch. Do you remember? Um, there was a spitting image. Yeah, <laughs> it was Brian image. Hibbard, wasn't it? And, these, um, they're bald, and, and there was the, the spitting image one went, "We are so ugly." I remember them all wearing those sort of almost like dustman jackets. Do you know what I mean? What are they called those? Yeah, yeah, uh, donkey jackets. Yeah, donkey jackets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, yeah. Very Michael Foot. Um, they reckon that was the only Acabella Christmas number one, but there's there are synthesizers on it. In fact, in case you like, yes, like you care, are. like you care. <laughs> Then came another landmark year, John, in the history of Christmas number ones, uh, in 1984. Ah, so, yeah, I know I've read about uh, yes. this. So I remember all this. Yeah. But this is uh, following the horrific news reports uh, of uh, the famine in Ethiopia. Bob Geldof and Midjur teamed up and decided to do something about it. And they put together a charity single. So first of all, they thought, should we just write a... Uh, should we do a cover version of sort of, you know, a Bob Dylan song or something? They went, no, then all the money has to go to that artist. So they thought, well, we'll write something ourselves. And um, so uh, they put a song together. Uh, Bob Geldof dug out some old song he had. Uh, Midjur played the bit of uh, melody, which Bob Geldof said sounded like Zed Cars. He said, I'm not ripping off Zed Cars. I'm ripping off Dan Busters. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah oh yeah so they put out this thing and it well tell us what happened Angela. well they put together this 
bit of British and Irish supergroup. Um, yeah. People like Phil Collins, Paul Young, Boy George, Bono, Spandau Ballet, George Michael. I recently actually read Andrew Ridgely's autobiography, right. which for any listeners that don't know, he was the other half of Wham yes. that wasn't George Michael. And the one I really liked, did you know he, um, sorry, complete That's divergence right. here, but he went, after Wham split up in 86, he went and did a bit of motor racing and he was really bad at it. Uh. Um, and I remember watching him, it would have been 1986 at the Selmet Prix in Brands Hatch F3. Yeah. And uh, he, it was raining and he crashed really badly. But anyway. Yeah, so, um, an allegory for his career after splitting up with yeah, George Michael. But I, I was there and my dad's friend Leslie was there and she kept saying, do you want me to? Because I loved Wham. Right. I was, what was I then? Nine, ten yeah. years old. And I really loved Wham. And like Andrew Ridgely was there and I was there. And there were loads of Wham fans had oh, turned wow. up at Brands Hatch. And I was like, I'm always here. I'm proper. Uh, oh, right, that's and and um, uh, my dad's friend like was like, do you want, should we go down to the pits? Because, you know, we could get in there and meet him. And I was too shy. I wouldn't go. Yeah. You missed a chance. So I wouldn't do it. There you go. But anyway, I read his autobiography recently and um, he missed the recording of Band-Aid. He was invited, but he said the invitation arrived by fax. And because obviously Bob Geldof and Midge are trying to stop any press leaks, anyone finding out what they were doing until it was done and everything, the details that they sent to the artists were quite vague. And because it had no details of record companies on or anything, he thought it wasn't something worth doing. He thought it was just a stupid thing he'd been asked to do. So while they were all there recording it, making history, Andrew Ridgely was just at home reading the papers with a bacon sandwich. <laughs> That's terrible. Didn't quite realised the gravity of what he'd yeah, and there's a great out on. great footage of all the stars turning up to the recording studios in West London, and uh, Sting has the Observer under his arm and walks to the studio, and um, uh, Tony Hadley for Spandau Ballet arrives in a chauffeur driven limo and goes, "Oh shit, now I look like a twat." Because <laughs> all the press are taking <laughs> photos of them all arriving. <laughs> Sounds like the day was, yeah, a bit a bit fraught, a sort of room full of egos with a deadline. Uh, apparently there's one point someone said to Bob Geldof, where's the food? And he replied, this is a fucking charity record and people are starving. Go buy your own fucking lunch, which I think is a fair point. So, yeah. So when it, when he did the, um, he was invited to the We Are The World recording in um, mm. America, uh, mm. they had this, all the finest chefs in LA put on this buffet and they had pate and lobster and oysters. And, uh, really? and he was like, this is fucking disgusting. We're trying to raise money for famine and you guys are stuffing more food in your faces than you can possibly eat. It's obscene. Yeah. You should send this money to Africa, you know. But there we go. Good on him. Um, apparently, Paul Weller, George Michael, had a bit of a falling out during the recording. Um, there was something, apparently Wham had lip synced at some minor's benefit. And I think George Michael might have called Arthur Scargill a wanker or something, which upset Paul Weller. Right. Uh, though by all accounts, no one really got on with Paul Weller. No, he's <laughs> quite a grumpy old son, I think. But um, yeah, uh, in 1987, a couple of years later, George Michael said did an interview about um, in the Guardian and said about him, "I've come across Paul Weller many times, and I just find him not quite intelligent enough to carry the flag that he carries." Oh, well, that's. I mean, Paul is musically very intelligent. <laughs> it's just that yes. uh, whether he's like that in interviews, it's a different skill, isn't it? Anyway, I'll, I'll defend Jam and. Well, it was. It was. He wasn't yeah. talking about him in interviews. I, know, I think I he was talking about him in person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like he wasn't a very nice. Bloke. Oh well. Anyway, the Band Aid song yeah. sold a million copies in its first week, quickly selling three million more to become the UK's fastest selling single ever at that point. It's yes. since been surpassed. Do you know, Angela? Who? Which? Who beat? Which song? Has it? Yeah. I don't know. Candle in the wind. The song for Diana. Oh, of course, of yeah. course, it was old um, goodbye English rose. Yeah, or whatever yeah, it was. Great yes, yes. Oh, God. Um, Bob Geldof said about 
uh, Band-Aid, uh, for whatever reason, this song, not a particularly good song, tapped into a groundswell of passion. I think it's sort of a fair point. Like, say it's not a very good song. With 21st century years, it's got a few I issues. I think the lyrics are a bit dodgy, but it's I think, I think musically it does what well, it does quite well. Uh, yeah, and they, you know, pulled it out of the bag pretty blooming Yeah, quickly. it was an emergency and they... Did they wrote, you know, what they wrote very quickly. I mean, it was it was originally going to be there's there won't be snow in Ethiopia this Christmas, and then yeah. uh, it didn't scan, so they changed it to Africa. And then people were like, really, all of Africa? It's a bit of there are rivers yeah, do flow in Africa, you know. Continent and but they changed they changed the lyrics when they did it again later, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. The song, it's interesting, the song that was at number two that year right. uh, was also a Christmas song. Now, to anyone panicking, we're not going to play it in case you're doing Whamageddon. Uh, if you don't know what Whamageddon is. is, you don't you know, Joel, no. what Whamageddon is. No. So this is a thing where every year um, you have to avoid hearing the song Last Christmas by Wham. And if you hear it before Christmas Day, you're out of the game and you you have to go to Wham Haller. Uh, <laughs> you've hell? been Whamageddon. And lots of people play this game. Okay. So um, we're not going to play it, so don't worry. You're safe. Don't turn off the podcast in case Last you're scared Christmas, you're going to hear it. No, John, it has to be... It's fine. You can, It has to be the original Wham version, that so right. covers are okay. You might have got it off me. Um, <laughs> so it um it was number two last right. Christmas. Um it stayed at number two for thirteen weeks and is the biggest selling single to never get to number one. That's good good trivia. Yeah. They, uh, there you they go. donated all the profits from it to Band-Aid as well. So good good for they George. Did, yeah. Um although they did they obviously wouldn't want it to not band-aid off the top spot. So it must have smarted a bit at the time. Because they did make it specifically to have that lucrative Christmas number one, but you know, yeah, they George it. Michael has sort of gone. Let's do a Christmas song. We'll yeah. make Christmas number one, and it'll be great. And then Band Aid came along. It's a bit like oh, now we can't yeah, have Christmas yeah. number one, can we? Um, the video for Last Christmas. I love the video for Last Christmas. I, I was a big Wham fan. You're probably guessing this. Yes. And the video is all like apres ski in the Alps, and it was a sort of winter companion to Club Tropicana. Right. Um, and according to Andrew Ridgely's autobiography, filming it was just a massive piss up with their mates. They just took a load of their mates to the Swiss Alps and had snowball fights and by all accounts the poor director and crew trying it was just carnage God. It's, um, but um, it is a great song last Christmas yeah it is a great song it's got a it's, it's yeah. just a, he knows how to do a melody old uh, uh, oh he George did Michael, bless him. God bless his song yeah and of course apparently it was a very very Christmassy but like loved Christmas would throw these big lavish Christmas parties and of course very sadly died on Christmas day oh I hadn't quite clocked that George Michael oh. yeah there you go. Where are we? 1985. Third Christmassy song in a row. Merry Christmas, everyone, by Shakers. Oh, I mean, when you're sitting down to go, I need to write a Christmas single. That's, <laughs> I need a new angle. I need, how can I find something original to say about Christmas? What about Merry Christmas, everyone? Yes! Shaky, <laughs> yes, you've cracked it. it. Snow is falling. You've done it, mate. Shake, All around Merry me. Christmas. That's a, that's a bloody, Children written by a computer, this song. 
Having ding, ding, fun. Ding, ding, I know, ding. but it's great. Oh, it's terrible, Angela. It's great, but it's Christmas. I can no See, Johnny, it doesn't matter that it's shit. <laughs> it doesn't have to be good. It's Christmas. Oh, God. I love it. I, I had a bit of a crush on Shaking Stevens oh, when I was quite little. All the blue jeans and the denim jacket yeah. and this whole house. I remember it. Green door. Oh, I loved it. When I saw him play um, Elvis at uh, in the West End, actually, when they did it. He was, it, oh, yeah, did it? He was in the Elvis musical back then. Sort of yeah. 70s. Michael Barrett, his real name. Oh, well, there, there you go. go. Welsh, wasn't he? Oh, was yeah. he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, well, still is, as far as I know. He's not dead, is he? I don't think. No, I think he's still keeping anyway, around. Um, the song, interesting fact, uh, Merry Christmas, everyone, was actually scheduled for release in 1984, but they postponed it a year because of Band-Aid. So I bet George Michael wishes he'd thought to do that with Last Christmas. So they had a whole year to come up with a better melody and title. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant, John. What's wrong? I had it on seven inch single. I can still see it now with snow him on the front falling. and his scarf and the snow falling round him. He must have spent Great. minutes writing that. <laughs> <laughs> to continue. It's a good song, John. It's still on all the Christmas compilations. Yeah. I'll be playing it later when I put my Christmas tree up. Don't you worry. Now, <laughs> the next notable Christmas number one. So that was 1985. Yep. We'll skip to 1988. Yes. And that is uh, Cliff Richards' Mistletoe and Wine. Ah, uh, Cliff. Did... Cliff and Cliff. Cliff I thought you were going to sing it then oh, for us, milk. John. No, sorry. Christmas <laughs> time, mistletoe and wine. <laughs> I've got a feeling I might have written a Cliff Richard parody for Spitting Image. I think we might have done. Oh, did you? I'm so forgetful now, but I think I wrote a parody of a Christmas song by oh, Cliff mistletoe Richard. mistletoe and wine. No, something like that, roughly, with this sort of song. Yeah, this sort of based Brilliant. on using this one as a template. But yeah. Well, did you know the song Mistletoe and Wine? I didn't know this until I was researching for this episode. It was originally a song written for um, something called Scraps, which was a musical, an adaptation of Hans Christian Andersen's Little Match Girl. Really? And they did a TV version of it in which the song was sung by Twiggy, who was playing a prostitute. <laughs> and it's you can find it online That's if you amazing. Google it. Is it on YouTube? It's got Roger Daughtry looking on. Wow. Um, look it up. It's very 80s sort of TV musical adaptation thing. And she's sort of playing, your, you know earthy heart a gold prostitute oh I love those sorts and um, <laughs> she's singing Mistletoe and Wine it's a slightly different version and apparently Cliff watched this heard the song decided he liked it so he changed the lyrics to reflect a more religious theme yeah, he wasn't making the mis- that- he wasn't making the mistake of devil woman again what, a, what <laughs> does devil woman do for a job Cliff what yeah devil what? woman what is that exactly what do you mean what do you mean <laughs> and so yeah that's how we've got this earworm oh, God. we know and love another, today it was just for some TV film musical <laughs> and, uh, it, yeah it's pretty bad actually that one 1989 Twiggy singing it oh yeah I will I'm going to look that up actually that's a good top yeah. tip that's a good interesting fact 1989 um, Band Aid are back I mean we ought to go hooray yes. but obviously it's not good news because the situation in Ethiopia means is Ethiopia still yeah yeah <laughs> uh, this time, Geldof speaks to Pete Waterman, and 24 hours later, Stockaken and Waterman have arranged a recording session because they don't argue with him. The spitting image parody of um, Charity Records was all the Americans going, We're scared of Bob, we're scared of Geldof. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, so he didn't argue with him. Uh, they lyrics arranged, and Michael Burke provided commentary and played over the outro of the music video. But they had Banana Rama, Big Fun, Bros, Chris Rea. Cliff Richard, Ray, Jason Donovan, Jimmy Somerville, Kylie Minogue, Wet, 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 and more. Yeah, little fun fact, John. Did you know Banana Rama's um, Sarah da- Dallin yeah. and Karen Woodward 
they were the only artists to perform on both. Oh, Siobhan Farhi had left Bananarama wow. by the time the second Band-Aid came along. So it's only the two members of Bananarama that uh, were on the first and the second one. Good, there you go. good fun fact. 1990, Cliff is back with his third Christmas number one. The only yes. artist other than the Beatles to do so at this point. It's Saviour's Day. Is that good? Which is terrible. <laughs> awful song. Let's not give it any more time. Okay. Bad song. 1991, Bohemian Rhapsody's back in our charts. Hooray. Oh, not hooray, because Freddie Mercury's died. No. So that's a bit sad. Yes. Uh, and they, as a tribute, the record company said, let us sell that record all over again, because it was only number one for 10 years back in the 70s. So, um, <laughs> well, it was a double um, double A side with those were the days of our lives, wasn't it? So, okay. it's a, you know, sort of a poignant, I suppose, way to... Yeah, and talk, uh, talk remember. Talk poignant. 1993. Oh, yes. Let's skip to 1993 because I think it's a very notable year in the Christmas number one history books. And it is, of course, Christmas number one, 1993. Blobby, blobby, blobby. Oh, that's such a lovely song. Do you know? Uh, <laughs> uh, in the Bleak Midwinter and Blobby, Blobby, Blobby. They're the two that really do it for me. God, I can't believe Mr. Blobby was a Christmas number one. I'm sure take yeah. that. We're happy to take the number two spot with their song, Babe. Yeah. For overseas listeners, how, how do we even begin to explain uh, Mr. Blobby? There was a TV show called Noel's House Party, hosted by Noel Edmonds, who is just like a DJ TV personality. Yeah, I'm not saying he's an odd man, but he does believe in cosmic ordering and drives around London in a black taxi that he owns with a mannequin in the back seat, so no one hails him. Okay. Yeah. The show was big. The show's well, massive, oh, yeah. isn't it? Every, yeah. Well, it used to be, yeah. Everyone used to watch it. Yeah. And it was set in a stately home called Crinkly Bottom. And it had a segment of the show that was called Gotcha, right? And this involved Noel Edmonds pranking a celebrity. So he would right. get some celebrity of the day. And, and in fact, my uh, my good friend Annabelle Giles, who you may know, yes, John. Yes, I sat at, her, um, sat at her table for your wedding. Very nice to chat with her. Oh, yes, day. of course you did. Yeah. Yes. Uh, mad as a box of frogs, but I love her dearly. And she, her, look, again, I'm giving people lots of things to look up on YouTube, but do look up her gotcha. So they called it the gotcha Oscar, which you would get. Right. And was this little award you would get when he pranked you on his TV show. So he tried to prank Annabelle, but she, it's on YouTube, all of this. She spots the camera in the back of the car. Oh, she's a pro. And she's she's such a pro. She says to the camera, I've spotted you. I know it's you, Noel Edmonds. I know what's happening, but I will play along so that you can play it out. Wow. And she plays along with the prank because she's a pro. It's really brilliant. Watch it. Um, it's great. Uh, in the, uh, but in the first series, these pranks involved this kids TV show character called Mr. Blobby, a great big pink sort of jelly mold type of character. And he was just a clumsy yeah. and accent pro. And anyway, he sort of took on a life of his own. And he had the Christmas number one single in 1993. So, little fun fact, in 1994, they opened a Mr. Blobby theme park. Do you remember yeah. that? And it was at um, Cricket St. Thomas in Somerset, um, which is now a like a holiday village or something. But uh, it was actually the family home of my friend Juliet, who I went to university with. Her grandma had lived there. And her dad was Peter Spence, who wrote To the Manor Born. Oh, about that place. And that's the manor oh, he was talking about, like good. that it's based on. Which then became Crinkly Bottom. Fantastic. There you go. Mid-90s, another yeah. hat trick. It's the Spice Girls who get three consecutive Christmas number ones in 96, 97, 98. Yeah. 2000, it's, so the, the, 2000, it's the Millennium Christmas number one. Pretty big deal. So you'd hope it was something monumental. What is it? Well, you'd hope. It was actually Can We Fix It by Bob the Builder. 
Um, but it did keep Westlife off number one. So and, you know. and provide a, um, a slogan for Ending. Barack Obama in his election campaign. Yes, indeed. Yes, we can. <laughs> can. Yes, uh, we can. Yes, we're cracking on through it now. We are now 2002. I think it's because... Like the heyday was very much yeah. the 70s and 80s, I think, of Christmas number one. And people do still bother about it, but we're old now, yeah. so we don't give a shit anymore. Um, 2002, I guess, was the next landmark in the history of Christmas number ones because it introduced a new type of Christmas number one and a really tedious one. I actually like this song a lot. I will say that. It's a brilliant pop song and it's Sound of the Underground by Girls Aloud, right. which is a really good song. But okay, it was later. the first Christmas number one that was the result of a TV talent show. Um, uh, it was pop stars, yeah, the rivals. Yeah. And the idea was there was a girl band and a boy band and they both released singles to try and get the Christmas number one. And Girls Aloud won. And the boys group, One True Voice. Who? Who? Quite. Uh, they got to number two with Sacred Trust. The power of television. In it. Yeah. Apparently Girls Aloud are listed in the Guinness World Records as the most successful reality TV group. More than the sure. monkeys? Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, quite. God. But this was the beginning of something now, wasn't it? Yeah. It sort of planted this seed of a Japanese knotweed that take hold later on. <laughs> so 2004, Band Aid was back. Band Aid 20. Only song to yeah. claim Christmas number one in three different versions. This time it was raising money for Darfur in Sudan rather than Ethiopia. <clears throat> David Alburn, yeah. Beverly Knight, Bono, Busted, uh, Dizzy Rascal, Miss Dynamite, Josh Stone, Justin Hawkins, Will Young... Yeah. And of course, Justin Hawkins had uh, missed the Christmas number one spot a couple of years before that with The Darkness oh, and his yeah. band uh, and his song rather called Don't Let the Bells End. Oh, OK. Then from oh, 2005, 2008, there's a series of X Factor winners. Christmas number one, Shane uh, Ward, Leanna Lewis, Leon Jackson, Alexander Burke. Yeah. And the public got bored with this. It's every year X Factor would be on just before Christmas and the winner would get the Christmas number one. Yeah. And because... Christmas number ones mean a lot to us. The public took matters into their own hands, John. Good. In 2009, DJ John Mortar and his wife Tracy launched a social media campaign to prevent the X Factor winner that year from getting number one. And they asked their followers to download Rage Against the Machines, Killing in the Name. Do you know that song, John? No. Well, the chorus goes, fuck you, I won't do what you told oh, me. Oh, okay. That's nice. <laughs> That's nice. Happy it's a good Christmas, song. Grandma. It's a good song. Very much it's no, my... It's no, oh. there's no one quite like Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good song uh, but Simon Cowell called this move cynical and stupid oh. uh, which of course had the complete opposite effect yep. to what you wanted and Killing in the Name sold more than half a million copies in the week leading up to the Christmas oh, chart and so poor X Factor winner Joe McEldry's cover of uh, Miley Cyrus's hit The Climb couldn't match it so, Killing in the Name of was Christmas number one so Killing in the Name Killing in the Name also became the first single to top the chart on downloads alone it was indeed. So uh, that was a pretty uh, yeah. special year, that. Then in 2010, though, X Factor was back with Matt Cardle when we collide. But I'll, I'll confess, I had a little bit of a crush on him. And at the time when he won X Factor, I never used to watch X Factor. Right. Uh, but I did when he was on because I quite liked him. And my friend Steve used to do their social media oh, so uh, in 2010. And so he got Matt Cardle to um, send me a photo of himself on Twitter holding up a a bit of paper that said hello Angela oh, on cool. it which was nice um, and then uh, but there was another social media campaign that year to try and oust him because uh, it was a Biffy Clyro song that he covered and they tried to get the original to get to number one instead but it didn't work that year then comes the Military Wives Choir in 2011 came out of the TV series The Choir with Gareth Malone 
who incidentally looks exactly like my agent. There you go. Handsome agent you have. Who cares? Uh, uh, <laughs> lyrics were taken from the poems written by women to their absent husbands and partners. So that's nice and sort of, you know, uh, thoughtful. Yeah. So we're now we're in a sort of um, era of, because we've had Band-Aid with charity single, but we, we get into a proper era of charity singles now. So yeah. 2012, uh, there was a cover of He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother, which was done under the Justice Collective. They were raising money for Hillsborough families who were still fighting for justice. There's, then, of course, artists, numerous yeah. artists. Beverly Knight, uh, Tony Hicks and Bobby Elliott of the Hollies, who obviously yeah. wrote the original. They were involved. Jerry Marsden, Paloma Faith, Melanie C, Paul McCartney, Robbie Williams, Alan Hansen and Kenny Dalglish. I'm not sure what Kenny Dalglish is singing is like, but we won't dwell on that. I mean, well, the no. thing I'll say about this period is that the, the, the charts were less of a thing. Do you know what I mean? It's like it was, were, people were less focused yeah. on one set of music, which was what it was in the sort of hit parade. And now there's downloads and people listening on their iPods or whatever. So it was a different... But it was like the FA Cup. Still... It had become devalued. Being number one was a devalued currency, I think. I, th I think that's right, generally. But people are still interested in what's Christmas number one. Yeah, OK. That's still a thing. It's yeah, still in all the papers. Yeah, and, yeah. You know. But I used to do a quiz. When I used to do the school quiz, I, the first question used to be, what's number one? And people going, I can't believe I don't know what that is. Because I would have so known what that was when I was younger. And people are, yeah. people are I just don't know. But Christmas number one, as you say, that's, a, that's another thing. Um, yeah. Where have we got up to, Angela? Uh, we are now in... Well, then there's another couple uh, more X Factor boring. winners. Boring, yeah. 2015, uh, wasn't it? 2015, yeah. Charity, another charity choir. Clean Bandit. Uh, for, uh, in 2016. And Ed Sheeran, yeah. 2017. Uh, yep. Yeah, and then the last four years, since 2017, have seen the same occupier of Christmas number one spot, and that is Lad Baby. Are you a fan of Lad Baby, John? Oh, I think they're splendid. With their groovy beat. This is where we're really showing our age. We were so excited combo. in the 80s and 90s. And now we're just like, nah, yeah, yeah. another better. Um, Loud Baby are the creation of blogger and YouTuber Mark Hoyle, who is well known for posting about trials and tribulations of fatherhood. He was voted Celebrity Dad of the Year in 2018. You're my Celebrity Dad of the Year, John. Oh, thank you. Every year. Uh, and he recorded with his wife, Roxanne, and his young sons, Phoenix and Kobe, who I'm sure will go on to thank him for yes, that indeed. when they're in their 20s. Yeah, novelty <laughs> recordings are back. And this time they're also raising money for the Trussell Trust. So songs might be a bit annoying and not very satisfying, but you can't knock them. 2018? Yeah. The first, the first one was, we built this city on sausage rolls. <laughs> Yep, 2019, they released I Love Sausage Rolls and were the first novelty act to get two consecutive number ones at Christmas. Oh, God. Uh, only the third act to top the Christmas chart two years in a row with different songs, the others being Beatles and the Spice Girls. Yeah. Both of them achieved three in a row. Yeah, in 2020, they equalised with Don't Stop Me Eating. And over <laughs> What's that a parody of, Don't Stop Me Eating? Don't Stop Me Eating. Oh, I see. Uh, don't Stop Believing. Oh, I see. Journey. Okay, yeah. yeah. And overtook them in 2021 with Sausage Rolls for Everyone, Lad Baby featuring Ed Sheeran and Elton John. Yeah, because Ed Sheeran and Elton John, they'd released the song Merry Christmas, Everyone, and then did this cover of it with Lad Baby. So yeah. thus beating themselves to the number one spot. And there you have it. Potted history of the Christmas number one, uh, which to summarise, in 69 years, John, of Christmas number ones, 12 of them were genuine Christmas songs. Eight are by TV talent show winners, three are by choirs, and five 
classed as novelty singles. Wow, that is uh, that's an interesting journey, Angela. Uh, thank you for choosing there that and go. doing the notes and. Uh, Something a bit silly. It's a bit silly and a bit, uh, uh, you know, history is many things. And uh, who's to say this is less important than the Spanish Civil War or the Black Death (laughs) or, you know, uh, how Britain and the world were nearly destroyed by a nuclear apocalypse? It's all valid. It's all uh, all valid. It shines shines a life on humanity, on the meaning of it all. (laughs) And is there anyone quite like Grandma? We don't know. We perhaps will never know. We will never know. Uh, uh, thank you so much for a, um, yeah, it's, listening it's a, it's for a, this it's year. A, this year. And, and, and we're, we're coming up to this. So happy Christmas to all our listeners. Happy New yes. Year. Have you got anything coming up in the New Year, Angela? I don't know what you're doing in 2023. Well, John, funny you should ask because I am going on tour. Oh, I am uh, with my show Hot Mess. Uh, the tour starts in February. Tickets are available from angelabarnescomedy.co.uk. Yeah. Um, I'm going all over the place. Uh, and there will be a second leg of the tour in the autumn. So if I'm not coming near you uh, this time around, then I might be uh, in the autumn. So bear with me. You can always sign up to my mailing list and that way you'll find out when more tickets go on sale. She's funny. John, what you She's funny. I'll come and see her. Thanks, John. Um, Come and see my musical. Come and see Mrs. Doubtfire at the Shaftesbury Theatre yeah, in the I'm West so End. Uh, when does it open, John? May, May previews in May and the opening in June, Woo-hoo. I think. So, yeah, it's going well, actually. It's selling really well. So that's exciting. Um, cool. But, you know, if you want, if you don't, that's fine, too. Um, that's how I do my selling. It's not fine if you don't want to come to my yeah. show, by the way. I will, I will be upset. Do what you want. You know, stay in, stay in and watch repeats. That's fine, too. John uh, wrote it. He gets paid yeah, whatever. I, I need bums on seats. I get a proportion. I get a, mine's dependent on ticket sales. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, we'll see you in 2023. At, you've got some time off now. You know, when, when grandma's off. being annoying and up and rock and rolling with the West, slip up to your bedroom, get on the internet and... <laughs> Don't, when they think, well, what are you doing on that computer? I'm giving five stars to We Are History is what I'm doing. I'm writing a nice review of We Are History. That's what you could do this Christmas. That's all we ask for at this time of year when others are less fortunate yeah, We don't yourselves. want much. We just ask. We just want for a, a five-star a, review we just want and des- de- We're just desperate for praise. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, never mind baby Jesus. What about praising John and Angela? It's not, it's not for the praise, John. It's for the algorithms. Pra- That's what we're telling it's them. It's for the praise. <laughs> it's for our egos. It's for our egos. Um, yeah. Have a lovely Christmas. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll see you next year. We'll be back next year. Bye.